Here at Just Baseball, we have teamed up with BetMGM for the 2023 MLB season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use code JUSTBASEBALL, and you will get up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Step number one, download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code JUSTBASEBALL. Step number two, deposit at least $10 and place your first wager on any game. Step number three, you will receive up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your bet loses. Just make sure you use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL when you sign up. Disclaimer, 21 plus to wager. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in Washington, D.C., Mississippi, Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, Washington, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. Call 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. Call 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. Call 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get your $1,000 first bet offer today. This baseball show is presented by BetMGM. Today, Wednesday, August 9th, you're getting Walker Bueller on Wednesday instead of Monday. We get into like this nutso conversation. We got deep down the rabbit hole of pitching and life and competitive nature. We set out with a rundown, full transparency. I email rundowns like every weekend, like, hey, here's what we want to talk about on Sunday night. And like, we just went totally off the rails in the best way possible. Fuck that rundown. Fuck the rundown. If you're going to listen to one episode of Walker Buehler on the Just Baseball Show, have it be this one. For the love of God, this was like, this was pitching and competitive fire. You're wrong. I think think it'll inspire everybody to, to work harder at whatever they're good at. Like, it was, there's an aspect of that too. Yes, there was pitching competitive fire. You're not wrong. I'm being a dick. But like there was a level of just like this is applicable to any human in any context. I was thinking about like my prospect write-ups, and I'm like, I obsess over that. Like that's my thing. I was thinking about you as like a broadcaster. Like you that's obsess immediately over where your, my mind but, went. But but you obsess over your craft. Like it's applicable to anything. And like he kind of talked about that too. I'm not gonna spoil the interview, but like or the conversation. it's not even an interview, it's a conversation. Um, but like, that is, that is really cool. Cause I don't know if we've had a conversation like that. Usually it's things that are just like, peel back the curtain. Tell us about what it's like to be a major league all-star. And he does that every week. But I thought this was a really cool mindset of a guy that's achieved, you know, close to the pinnacle of his field and can tell you kind of the thought processes that can apply to anybody in anybody's field, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, dude, like this is awesome. So just baseball show Monday, August 9th. He's Aram. I'm Jack. 
Just baseball oh, yeah. show, as always, brought to you by BetMGM. Also want to hit on Emerson Hancock and Ethan Salas off the top. One guy is going to make his big league debut. The other is going to high A at a young 17 years old. Was jo- was born June 1, 2006. Uh, and then we've got some thoughts on, on the Kevin Brown thing that we want to share. Um, should we do the Kevin Brown thing right now? Probably because like every to you, Mr. Broadcaster, every every moment there are 50 more tweets about it. Um, so like I feel like we're wasting precious time right now. Um, here's the deal, man. Like last night you saw the chance at Camden Yards, uh, free Kevin Brown. And, yeah. you know, that that awful announcing clip has 40 million views of Kevin saying something. And and I quote tweeted that or I re posted quote posted i don't know what x terminology oh, yeah, what is, x is yeah i don't know but what i will say is w- what i said on x what i said on twitter <laughs> is the same exact thing that i feel right now i sat there with a bunch of college buddies a bunch of college broadcasting buddies and listened to that clip and we were waiting for the slip up and the slip of the tongue slur or something like that or something that could be possibly misconstrued as grounds for suspension and there was nothing what he said was hey the orioles didn't win any series against the tampa bay rays since 2017 now they have the chance to do so it's not only they used to be bad it's they used to be bad but they're good now it's good news he shared a positive thing on the Royals in a broadcast open, a pre-produced broadcast open, and he got suspended because the Orioles are soft as shit. That's yeah. everything. And I John think Angelos is soft as shit. Soft as shit. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm not saying fucking Adley Rutschman and Gunner are soft as shit, because like I'm sure they're on Kevin's side. And I'm Michael Elias had nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with it. It's a John Angelos thing. And that's how ownership works. And we're talking about the Jerry Reinsdorf thing with the White Sox too. It it is. This is all a reflection of the ownership in major league baseball and the ownership in major league baseball. Chances are it's probably fucked. A lot more people have issues with their owners than they do love their owners. Um, So I, my only thought here is, Everybody's saying the same thing. And I agree with you. It's right. Kevin is a Syracuse grad. Kevin was the Syracuse Chiefs announcer from 2011 to 2017. I've listened to a shit ton of Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown's really good at his job. He's going to be really good at his job for a really long time. He's going to be a major league announcer for a really long time. It was not grounds for punishment. End of story. Everybody's saying the same thing. I, you know, it's objectively just a, a tough look for the Orioles when you don't even have like the edgy weirdos on Twitter saying like, no, nah, you deserved it. Like, you don't, <laughs> Nobody. it's it's unanimous even amongst the edgy weirdos on Twitter <laughs> that like this was the dumbest shit of all time. Uh, Michael K. I'm not even a Michael K. fan. I, I think he's good this. at his job. But Michael Kay's whole breakdown on this was brilliant. And Michael Kay is one of the more successful guys in this field, gets it, right? But I love just seeing Michael Kay go out, you know, go to bat for somebody that, you know, hasn't been doing it nearly as long as he has, but he he acknowledges is really good at this thing. And, you know, I, I thought everything, go check out the, the, the snippet of, of what Michael Kay said, I think, on, on his show. Um, but he really hit the nail on the head. He's like, this was something that was like created by the production team and you know graphics people want to make it and like a producer had to thumbs up it and like it, it was in the game notes bro then. orioles pr yeah, it was, 
puts it in the game. Yeah. Notes. Suspend him. Suspend him. Could you imagine being, I don't know, is John, John Angelos like a Chris Castellini billionaire or is he like a billionaire? I think he's a billionaire. Or not Chris. Bob Castellini. Chris Castellini is the barstool guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Bob yeah. Castellini. Bob Castellini. Um, John, it's amazing. It, this shows you. If you think money will cure your issues, take a look at John Angelos. Two you billion. can make billions of dollars and still feel so tiny and so weak that you get rattled about a broadcaster talking about what your team once was. And the reports were like, oh, it made me feel – people within the, the the Orioles brass thought it made them feel cheap. It, it seemed like it was a shot on them being cheap. Then spend more money. You have the 29th ranked pay, payroll in all of baseball. Spend more money. You're so cheap that you're actually pissed about people not even insinuating that you're cheap. You're insecure and cheap to the degree that someone doesn't even say that you're cheap. You project that think that they're saying that. And instead of just not being cheap, you suspend them. Um, this is the byproduct of a insecure and cheap billionaire. Who do you, who do you think is a higher net worth? The Angelos family or Jim Crane with the Astros? Please don't tell me it's the Angelos family. $600 million net worth higher. Jim Crane has a net worth of $1.4 billion, according to Forbes. And it's more than that, by the way. Like It'll always be more. Yeah, and and Peter Angelos, who's listed, John is like kind of the the head honcho there. Two billion dollars, according to the LA Times. So, I mean, like it, it's just a joke. And but the broadcaster said we're cheap, not yeah, really, but but like he didn't say they're. He didn't cheap. even say it. He didn't, he didn't say even it. say it. He said they lost series between 2017 and 2022, and now they're gonna win the season series. It's it's absolutely fucking insane. And like everybody's got a take on it. And this is not a unique take, but this is the just baseball show perspective of it. And it I, is I, it, I just like making fun of billionaires. Yeah, like it's not tired. It'll never be tired. He was wrongfully suspended. He worked a radio series because another one of his broadcast, you know, cohorts didn't wear Orioles labeled a tire to call the game. Like are what you kidding me? This didn't is they a, fired John Miller too? The, yeah, and the the four the four best. I'm gonna give you the four best. I watched like pretty much every broadcaster retaliation ever. Um Benetti did it uh, in an amazing way where he said the Orioles lost six games to the Yankees, and I hope the Baltimore Orioles don't suspend me. Like it was it was just a dig and it was good. And I know Benetti and Kevin Brown are um they work together in Syracuse, they're they're very good friends. Gary Cohen with the Mets was uh-huh. amazing with it. He said, you humiliated yourself when you fired John Miller. You're humiliating yourself now. Michael Kay, like you mentioned, and Dave O'Brien, the Red Sox TV announcer, I think did a great job too. Uh, and and Dave O'Brien, Benetti, they're both Syracuse guys. They both know Kevin Brown. Kay and Gary Cohen coming to bat for him was, was freaking awesome too. And everybody said something. So that's all we got to get out there, man. Like it was just, it's a shitty situation. It's stupid. He shouldn't have been suspended. I'm glad that he's back in two days. And you know, hopefully this is, this isn't water under the bridge, but hopefully this is the start of a long and amazing TV broadcast career on major league baseball for Kevin Brown. Emerson Hancock is looking to start his major league career off on a really high note. Hancock with Brian Wu going on the IL with forearm issues. Hancock had his contract selected Former seventh overall pick in 20. No, that was Nick Gonzalez. Sixth overall pick in 20. 
um, out of Georgia is going to make his major league debut. I've long been a Hancock truther. I think you have kind of ridden the ebbs and flows of Emerson Hancock. What I will say before kicking it over to you is this motherfucker throws strikes. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I think he's, he's found that. And I think that gives him a good floor and the, and the Mariners, they're a hot team right now. And you know, the Brian Wu loss hurts. I think Wu's obviously a better option than Hancock with the way he's been throwing. But the fact that you can plug in a Hancock who I, I think can hold his own, like no doubt about it. He's a top 10 prospect in the system. He's one of their better arms they have left. And as you mentioned, he throws strikes, fastball and cutter. He's going to pound the strike zone with those two really good lineups. They may, they may bash him if he's not hitting his spots, but he's going to give you a shot. I think he'll give you a fair amount of quality starts. And this is the guy that, you know, a lot of teams are, are having arms go down. They don't even know who to bring up. This is a guy that won't be a scheduled loss for you in the rotation. Like Hancock, he's not the guy that we thought he would be as the potential frontline starter, but he's still 92 to 94, uh, several 95s and maybe touches a 96. That cutter has really come along and become a weapon for him. And he'll mix in a changeup that he just doesn't command that well. Uh, but those two pitches alone, pound the strike zone with that. I think he can be a fine back end of the rotation guy for them and help hold it down. Again, that cutter has really turned into a weapon for him. So it's nice to see Hancock like through the ups and downs injuries last year, you know, maybe not reaching the potential that we had once hoped. And he's 24 years old. He could still be a really quality big league pitcher. And, you know, I think this is a good opportunity for him to, you know, solidify himself as, as such. I'm not just saying that the word bulldog because he was a Georgia bulldog, but like this guy is a bulldog. Like he screams what the Braves have gotten from Bryce Elder this year. And Elder was like the 100 percentile. Bryce Elder pre all-star break was like the 180th percentile yeah, of yeah, outcome yeah, of what we thought Bryce Elder was going to be. But what what Elder does for the Atlanta Braves is create consistently consistency. And I, I thought that's what Kyle Muller was going to offer the Braves for a really long time. Muller gets traded to Oakland. He doesn't do that. But Bryce Elder is like such a good five to have because he's a reliable five innings every night. And it could be five innings, a two run ball. It could be six innings, a three run ball, whatever it is, it's going to be innings. And I think that's Emerson Hancock moving forward. I think a lot of people dreamt on Emerson Hancock being a two or a borderline one. He's not that. But what he can be is reliable, nine Ks per nine, three walks per nine, and he's limiting hard contact. Yeah, no doubt. The last thing I'll say is, you know, he turns the page well, too. He's going to have his blow-up starts because if that if that cutter is not there uh, or this he's not hitting his spots, he's going to get bombed. But the thing is, is the way he turns the page is really impressive and how consistent he is otherwise. It, you have a nine-earned run start back on, on July 5th. And then he bounces back against a really good Corpus Christi lineup, which is the Astros double affiliate and goes six shutty and then goes shutty the day after that. Uh, so to, to me, this is a guy that even through the, you know, the, the down points and the rough starts, you don't have to worry about him. I think, you know, he'll, he'll go back to the drawing board. He'll get right and he'll bounce back and give you a, a good chance at a quality start the next week. That's all you can want out of a five or a four is a, a guy that can turn the page when he gets racked and give you a quality start the next time around. And I think he can be better than that. Like there's a world where he becomes, you know, maybe an average three, but he's going <laughs> to have to find that third pitch. But in the meantime, I think he can more than hold it down for the Mariners who have been surging by the way, just won their sixth in a row 
Don't sleep on Seattle. It's not his job to bring the vibes. The vibes have been freaking great in Seattle. And Julio robbed a homer. And I mean, it looked like he didn't catch it. And then all of a sudden he pulls up his glove and it's sitting in there. Like the vibes are really good in Seattle. And Emerson Hancock, I think, is going to help that, especially after the vibes may have diminished a little bit with, with Brian Wu going on the shelf. Before we get to Walker Buehler, 17-year-old Ethan Salas, who turned 17 in June. To high A Fort Wayne, I cannot wait to talk to my good friend John Nolan about it. And we might have him on the call up after a couple of weeks just to chat solace. And he saw Merrill, man. Like there was a two-week hiatus there between Merrill and Ethan Salas. But Ethan Salas to high A as a young 17-year-old catcher, your thoughts, Mr. Layton. I don't think people realize how absurd this is. Um, it's crazy enough that he's not playing at the complex. It would be crazy enough that he was even playing at the complex. Stateside. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so just to put it in perspective, he's nearly two full years younger than the next youngest player at the high A level, which is Samuel Basayo, by the way, which is, uh, I always want to say Basayo, but I, I feel like we Americanize it to Basalo, but it's got to be Basayo. It's Basayo. Uh, it's yeah. Basayo. Catcher, by the way, with the Orioles. But before I had that full brain dead moment, because it's 1 a.m. as we're recording this. Yeah. He is two full years younger than the next youngest position player or player period at high A, Samuel Basayo. Orioles system, really good prospect. That guy's 18 years old. And he's the only 18-year-old. He turned and he's about to turn 19 in like a day. That's why I said two full years. Yeah. He's about to turn 19. But he's the only 18-year-old at that level. So not only is Ethan Salas the only 17-year-old, in a couple of weeks he's going to be the only guy that is 17 or 18, which is absolutely asinine, especially as a catcher. It is ironic that the other guy is also a catcher, but he's about to be 19. He's old as shit. He's washed. Like, Salas is 17. Um, I do think it's interesting, and it's just classic Padres, A.J. Preller, weirdo stuff. They're sending him up there in the midst of an 0 for 16 stretch, which is funny. But also on the flip side of it, this motherfucker is 0 for 16 and is still ha- still has an 837 OPS this season. What? <laughs> like, this guy, not only should he not even be in low A, he shouldn't even be good in low A. He's great, very solid in low A, and now he's up to high A. I bet he holds his own there too. This guy is a special wonderkin type of talent um he might run into some trouble that's fine like it might be hard baseball's hard he should be what what would he be 17 years old junior in high school i think so um yeah he can go to an r-rated movie now without his parents which is really exciting as of as of two months ago he could go to an r-rated movie without his parents yeah like dude just think about what you were doing when you were 17 this guy's in high a um very cool stuff. I hope he succeeds. He's going to be a good player for a long time. But to be two years younger, almost almost two full complete years younger than the next oldest guy at a level. I mean, that's unheard of stuff. Not so shit. Not so shit. All right. We're going to get to Walker Bueller here. Quick background that I want to give for you. Um, Tom House is somebody that we talk about with Walker. He goes to TPI in San Diego. That's where he threw to John Rahm, the world number one in golf and the Masters champion, who was just like standing in for a Walker Bueller bullpen because why the hell not? But he was there working with Tom House. And we talk about his relationship with Jose Barrios. Tom House 
is a very unique and one-of-a-kind pitching mind and maybe the premier pitching mind in all of baseball. Tom House, if you're active on social media in the baseball sphere, has great interaction with Pitching Ninja, Rob Friedman, and with Codify, Michael Fisher. And Tom House is like cutting-edge type shit. And I want to read you this snippet from his Wikipedia page. Quote, House became the pitching coach for the Texas Rangers in 1985, during which time he was notable for his work with Nolan Ryan. During Ryan's induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame on July 25th, 1999, he credited House as a positive influence on his career, saying, quote, while I was with the Rangers, I was very fortunate to have a pitching coach by the name of Tom House. Tom and I are of the same age, and Tom is a coach that is always on the cutting edge. I really enjoyed our association together, and he would always come up with new training techniques that we would try and see how they work into my routine. And because of our friendship and Tom pushing me, I think I got in the best shape of my life during the years that I was with the Rangers. That was Nolan Ryan's Hall of Fame speech. Tom House was the pitching coach with several other teams. He was the pitching coach for USC for a good bit. He was in Million Dollar Arm with John Hamm, if you remember him. <laughs> but his big thing is quarterbacks. He's worked with a lot of really good quarterbacks. I see Drew Brees, Dak Prescott, Tom Brady, Carson Palmer. Um, oh, my God, Terrell Pryor, Matt Ryan, Mac Jones, Andrew Luck, Jimmy G. Like, they keep on going. So the thing about House is like, not only does this guy know pitching, not only was he a major league pitcher, but he also knows throwing mechanics from a quarterback, probably from fucking javelin throwers and from pitchers. And yeah. we talk about Barrios at a survey look, but he totally worked with Barrios this offseason on how he throws. Yeah. And it sounds like Walker wanted to just pick that guy's brain a little bit and it's working. Not surprising that Walker wants to pick that guy's brain. Um, I mean, he's one of the smartest baseball minds and pitching minds, as you know, we talk about on the episode out there. And um, it was cool to to hear Walker's perspective on it. I think you hit the the nail on the head on the whole, you know, just kind of breakdown of him. It's also, you know, you know how like back in the day, and one of the dumbest things that we've done in human history is like the test if you were a witch was that they would tie like cinder blocks to you or like rocks to you. I guess it and see if you drowned <laughs> and see if you drown. But if you, you know, if you drowned, then you weren't a witch. Well, you were right, just you're, dead. You're dead. Yeah. But if you survived, you're a witch. I think the like witchcraft te test for Tom house was like, can you make Terrell Pryor a good thrower? <laughs> and when he couldn't, they're like, okay, you're just a really good coach. You're not a, you're not a magician or like a witch. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. I also want to take this moment. Speaking of pitching awesome conversation on the call-up with Jackson Joe. Yes. I just wanted to mention that real quick. Um, talk about pitching minds. Obviously, Job's just turned 21, like has a lot of, of ground to cover to, to reach the, the Walker Bueller range. And those guys ironically mentioned Walker's cutter as inspiration for his cutter, cool. uh, which was really cool in the episode. But Jackson Job, one of the most like thoughtful guys and, and intelligent pitchers I've talked to on the call-up, Tiger's top pitching prospect, number three overall pick in the 2021 draft. That was a real cool conversation. He screams young Walker Bueller to me in a lot of ways. So that's why it was really cool to now talk to Walker a couple of days later. And I was like, wow, this is kind of like uncanny here uh, of just like the way that these guys think about pitching almost just like if you went back a handful of years. Um, so yeah, that was cool. But if you enjoy this Walker episode, go check out the Jackson Job one on the call up as well. You just made so many Tigers fans so stupidly happy. Yeah. Without further ado, Walker Buehler.
talking with Walker Bueller on a really special day for his uh, journey back to the mound, which is going to be really fun. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into uh, the wild card chase a little bit and uh, certain someone, I guess you threw your, your first live BP to, although I'm not sure if you would consider it batting practice, but before all that, we've got good stuff tonight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I just started on mine. So yeah, you're doing a great job. <laughs> no, well, they're one of uh one of my favorites, probably the first one that we've had on here. That's kind of the big collector series, right? So this is the green label, um, the special reserve, which is um, kind of the, the I don't want to say the cheapest or the lowest level because it's fantastic stuff, but in the in the Weller rainbow, that's probably the first one that people will will have access to. There's a bunch of bunch of different ones. Uh, they're all kind of different and uh, something that everybody should check out, in my personal opinion. Yeah, Brandon. Uh, Brandon hooked us up. Like, I think we're at the point where I we we've all got it. Peter might still be waiting, but Brandon got us good to go. Brandon oh, yeah. Danley at, at Sazerac. So, thank you very much to Buffalo Trace and to Brandon for that. So that was big time. Um, I I've heard about the like mystique of Weller. I guess um, we're gonna do Blanton's. I'm sure for for a special occasion. Maybe it's Walker Bueller's return to the mound, but. Um, this is a pretty special one too, man. I no. today's a big day, huh? What's going on? Yeah, diff- difficult to find this one. I got a funny story on this. Yeah. So a lot of people probably 15 years ago from Kentucky will tell you that you could get this bottle for 15 bucks, basically anywhere. And it kind of had this little cult following and a lot of people that would only drink Weller and, and whatever. Um, and then it just kind of became this thing. Um, Last year at our charity event, we auctioned off a single barrel of it, of the blue label. Yeah. For fifty thousand. Okay. And so how many bottles does a barrel make? That's in between one sixty and two twenty. That's lasted me a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah. For a while. But that's that's, that's the kind of following that it has. You know, typically. Weller on the secondary market, that green bottle is probably going to go around a hundred dollars. Yeah. The other ones are going to start going up. Some of them to about $1,200 a bottle, probably. Listen, man, we're not kicking gift horses in the mouth right now. We're really appreciative. I'm, I'm trying to give a nice <laughs> synopsis of what we've got going. <laughs> no, so what's like the, the biggest like fundamental difference because i'm the, i'm drinking the, the green light label wellers right yep. now it's very good it's probably some of the best bourbon i've had which is not saying much but it's very good like what's the yep. fundamental difference between the green okay, label so, and then some of the more expensive ones yeah so obviously age is going to be the first one the one thing i will say about weller in general is you'll see on the front it says the original weeded bourbon so a lot of the bourbon that i like is weeded um makers is a weeded bourbon Weller is probably the weeded bourbon. It's just how much they put in the in the mash, similar to if you have a rye, right? But mm-hmm. rye is kind of its own its own category, and weeded is kind of a subcategory of kind of more traditional bourbon. Uh, I personally like them better. I think they're a little uh, seemingly crisper to me in the flavor. Similar, a rye will do that sometimes, but I just like the flavor of the weeded one better and um yeah weller weller 12 which is the black label um is probably my favorite bourbon in the world i would say tentatively but i'm not wrong in saying it got you 
while we're um, looking it up right now. Another rabbit hole to go down if you so choose, much like the adapting price point of Weller. Um, I went down that rabbit hole about a year ago in regards to lobster. You know, lobster was like super accessible, really low price point. Yeah. And this is, you know, a hundred years yeah. ago or so, but it's jumped because it got that type of mystique around it, probably much like Weller. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, in the Burma thing. You'll see that not as often. Weller's probably the the biggest rise from not being a very expensive bottle to like, if you still find it for retail, that's a $30 bottle of bourbon. So you're talking maybe a dollar more than Buffalo Trace or $3, whatever it is at a liquor store. Um, but yeah, it's hard to find. And kind of nowadays you kind of got to know some people and Hey, will you save me one? If you get any blah, 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 especially the, the upper echelon ones, they have an orange label. That's a single barrel. That's, that's pretty, pretty strong. And um, I have, there's one called the Weller 17. So the five kind of main names in Buffalo Trace, they came out with what's called an antique collection. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get the Weller Weller antique. And that's about as, uh, the first time I tried it, we were at a tasting there. And the way it was described was if if the meteor was coming down, right? And you had one one more night, what would what would you drink? And and Weller 17 is is probably up there. It's pretty pretty spicy pretty hot but it's it's delicious stuff yeah see mine's Michelob Ultra I'm watching my figure mm, interesting so I want to go down looking hot um you're gonna save a little coin on the casket or what yeah. a little bit <laughs> teensy bit um a big day for you today man you are uh you're not flying anywhere you're gonna drive and, and you're gonna do something pretty cool at Chase Field yeah yeah, well, I know this is coming out on uh, on Wednesday. However, for all you people out there, I'm, I'm not drinking bourbon the night or the day that I go and throw the hitters. But tomorrow, <laughs> so today, but tomorrow, but today, I am throwing the hitters at Chase Field. So that will be a big, big milestone for me. So how do you kind of get ready for that beyond what you, you've already done? Like what's the, what's the biggest change in terms of the bullpens that you're throwing versus somebody standing in? Because I know you push yourself otherwise. So it, what's the difference maybe mentally? Yeah. I, I mean, until you get on a five day rotation there for me, at least there's not as much of the, Oh, it's my start day. Right. Um, I think I kind of treat today as, as if I have a big day, but not a start day tomorrow. And And these lives will kind of not be, quite as distance in days as as a start would be so there'll be three or four days in between um probably at times two three would be typical so you're just kind of building these innings but um uh, yeah it's a big day obviously doing a chase doing it against some of my teammates um you know it can get a little interesting when you're throwing to to kids at the Arizona League or, or whatever because they're so aggressive that you almost end up getting into some really weird situations and the outcomes aren't what you think they probably would be um you know you get ambushed or you'll throw a bad pitch and they're so aggressive that um you know a a pro pro won't swing at a certain pitch and so i just kind of want to i feel good to the point where i want to know where my stuff is at and and even less so that um what they're hitting more so i want to pick their brains when we're done right I, i think that's the that's the biggest thing and and even a lot of the bullpens that I've put on the internet or whatever have been with guys standing in and it's for that reason, right? Just to say, Hey, like, did you see this? Did you see that? How did this one act? Because the numbers can only tell you so much, right? You can have the craziest slider in the world by the numbers, but 
if they see it right out of your hand, it's kind of useless in some form. And um, yeah, I'm excited to get some guys that are actively um, trying to move and, and make a move on the ball to, to let me know what they see. Is there anything specific or like in particular that you're looking to hone in on or kind of get some specific feedback on, or are you just interested to get that feedback across the entire arsenal as you throw? Um, Both. I mean, there's some things that I know are, are probably pretty similar in terms of like my curveball, for example, if the numbers are the same, it's typically going to be reacted to pretty similarly. Um, I'm trying to throw a little bit harder slider, a little bit more downer instead of the big sweeper as much. Um, so I haven't seen a, a hitter swing at that. Um, so that one will be interesting. Um, and then I think the fastball as well is a big thing. You just kind of want to see um, if the numbers that you're getting are, are telling the whole story. Um, if it feels fast for 92 or 94 or 96 or whatever it is, um, does it feel slow? Are they seeing it? I, I think you can get lulled into throwing a bunch of bullpens and the ball is out in front of you the whole time. And you don't even realize that a hitter can see it the whole time because your catcher is likely feeling good about it because they can see the ball the whole time. Right. And, and it's kind of the last thing you want a hitter to do. So uh, a lot of little, little things like that. I mean, at the end of the day, you're trying to build up and feel good and feel healthy. And uh, I know Connor, uh, our pitching coach, you know, got interviewed or whatever and said it it looked right to him and, and kind of more like the old me in terms of the intent, but you never really know. And and a guy standing behind you can't tell you the whole story either. So um, definitely some encouraging stuff that, that we've been going through the past couple of weeks, but, um, you know, you won't know the whole story until I throw it to a hitter in a major league game, but you can start getting kind of puzzle pieces and and start figuring it out as well as trying to build up. Well, and some of that stuff that you're probably looking for to hear from hitters will only come from guys that are really comfortable in their situation, and those are major leaguers. So kind of revisiting that point, not like, you know, dragging the younger guys, but I mean, they're they're trying to prove themselves like, hey, if, if I get a knock against Walker Bueller, I feel good to a certain extent, right? But, but major leaguers are almost going to, I don't know, see you for, you know, just a chance to see more pitches before they hop in a game that night, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that I've explained breaking balls in particular to to younger guys or guys that I've talked to is like in the major leagues, they have to it has to move the same amount, but it has to happen way later. And so yeah. I, I think you can kind of, you know, if you think about 60 feet, six inches and, you know, in college, you can probably get a ball to start moving at 40 feet and in high A, double A, it's 45 and double A, it's 55 and, and you start or 50, whatever you start creeping it back. And so I've kind of always thrown a lot of bullpens at really short distances, maybe 50 feet um, to try and get the ball to not move. So I'll clip it, know that it's going to move, see it start, but wanting to tighten everything up. And um, that's kind of been how I've always tried to, to figure that out. Um, even today, I don't really throw bullpens ever to a full length. 60 feet, six inches, I'll have the guy sit right on the right on the plate because I want to know where those pitches are moving through the zone, right? I, I think that comes with a little bit of, I know that I can typically throw strikes. And so I'm not just trying to land everything in the zone. I, I kind of want to know where it's crossing more so than, than where it would be received to be called a ball or strike. And 
Um, I, I think that's, you know, those two things, having that little four feet contrast will show you like, all right, before my bullpen, I just threw four of these sliders and they barely moved. But then when the catcher gets them, they're low. So then you got to readjust your sights now that you know that maybe it's late enough or has the action that you want once once you're back there, right? But you can also trick yourself. If you get guys that sit way too far back, I can throw a breaking ball and it can bounce. But guess what? Like that one at the plate is middle down and, and some of these guys will hit that thing 450 feet. So I think it. I think for me, it's all very intentional and, and very trying to orient what I see and what I feel to what I'm trying to do on, on any given throw, I guess. How, how much video do you watch uh, in terms of going back in the bullpens or, and even when you're healthy and, and pitching previous, uh, like, how much did you watch back of, of maybe your games and, and footage that way? Yeah. I, I would say I probably only watch video during the game. Most often if something's kind of awry or I'm trying to, if something feels incorrect or doesn't feel good or, or a hitter's not reacting the way that I think they should think I made a really good pitch and whatever, then I'll watch that stuff. But um, for me, it's more now with the data stuff is getting a feedback on the data to match up with the ones that I feel good on. Right. So you may, I, I may throw three fastballs and ask the guy, which was the best if I felt three different things. Right. And then you can kind of, that, that's how I use the the new data stuff is trying to hone in on certain feelings because I'm going to feel it out there. And if I don't know the correct feeling, right, you can throw three balls and they can all feel good and I'll feel good differently. And so trying to pick the one that creates kind of what I want is, is, you know, my kind of, I don't, I really hate the word like process, but that's my process, I guess. Yeah, it's probably the checkpoints that you're trying to hit, right? It's it's thoughts that you want to have at any given time. Um, yeah, and I know we're, we're going to talk about the TPI. That's like a big reason I went there, right, is I threw 10 balls with my normal, everything feels normal delivery, right? Yeah. And then Tom House and I have been kind of talking through some different cues and things we're trying to figure out. So I'll throw five with that cue and five with this cue and see if my body reacts different. And And I think for me coming away from that, I now have like the one or two cues that are more effective than the other two or three that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to get to that right now, but this is dynamite, man. Like this is yeah, number it's one. It's really good. This is definitely the best we've had, I think, on here. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I will tell you the Blantons will is at the same level. It's a different, different kind of thing. It's kind of like, you know, do you like an Aaron Judge kind of player? Do you like an Arias kind of player? Like they're, they're you win either way, good, right? Yeah. But they're they're different different strokes, I guess. Yeah. Jack, putting you on the spot. Speaking of different strokes, what makes this one good to you? Uh, I don't know. I guess like it's a little bit more subdued. I but like subdued it, might not be the smoother. right. Smoother. It's definitely it, like it just. Yeah, I don't you, know how to describe. Do you guys it. taste the little like crispness that I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely yeah. do, but it's also it like it doesn't like smack you in the face as hard, but it, it, yeah. it, it's a good kick, but like it doesn't like it doesn't linger the same way. Yeah. And there's a little I sweetness that kind of I hangs. would never I would never do it, but I've also heard that Weller is about as good as you can get like a mixed, like a little flash of something. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, this is numero uno, I think, for me, and I love just like the smoothness of it. Um now let me let me tell you guys something real quickly here. Yes. I will tell you for me, 
so there's a lot of ways to like do the ice and all that stuff right yeah for me my favorite is ice in a yeti cup i've seen you're both rocking glass cups you're probably getting a little sweat you're probably getting a lot of ice melt right yes yeah but i've still got like full full cubes in there Chew. these guys are that's the next step right you guys might have to get you a little bourbon cup bourbon cup damn i didn't know okay okay i get those on amazon there's definitely sweat in here yeah so what happened but what some people do is there's bourbon rocks right where they're physical like you Mm -hmm. know they look like an ice cube i have a few at the house so you put them in the freezer and then obviously there's no there's no water right so you're not not diluting it but you're getting the chill to it yeah um you know, there's different tiers. I'm in, I'm in probably tier three now. Okay. Uh, I would say mixing straight melting ice and then straight not melting ice. All right, we're tier two. Yeah, yeah tier two. Two. Is the final boss, two. Is the final boss neat? Room temp neat. Oh, yeah. temp See, neat. I'm good. I, I don't think I enjoy it at that point. Yeah, but listen, man, if you ever find yourself in, you know, a, a dark, dimly lit bar, right, and you're sitting across from, you know, somebody impactful, you'd like to be able to order yes. something neat, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a big power play. So it, yeah. yeah it, it's like having, it, it's having the big gun, but not always using it, you know? Got you. Gotcha. Keep it in your back pocket. I yeah, understand. I need that. Yeah. I need that in my in my uh in my it's bag. also what you guys will learn if you're similar to me is that if you have a situation where you can't have four of these, right? Mm-hmm. Having a having one neat will it's a governor for yourself. Got yeah. It. I was gonna say I've already this is the fastest I've ever finished one. Like yeah. I, I don't even have it near me to be able to refill it. That's it. Yeah. I'm done. Get yourself well, another four, man. Uh, I just yeah, I can't leave. Um want to jump to the Tom house thing and TPI your yeah. time in San Diego, you threw to somebody in San Diego and it just happened to be the world number one. And, and the guy that wore the green jacket, uh, yeah. that was, it was kind of a weird Twitter video to come across, but weird in the best way here. We got John Rom just standing in for Walker Bueller as he throws a bullpen. Yeah. Well, I was at, I was at kind of the premier golf Institute in the world. Right. I, I think they did a fantastic job with, with the baseball stuff and we kind of we actually use the same system right the same straps and all that stuff that they hook you up to but mm-hmm. it is the titleist performance institute and um so a lot of golf going around there not a not a ton of baseball at the moment another they're kind of taking a foray into it they're they're building a big baseball facility and um i'm excited to go back there at, at some point and kind of see where i'm at uh, relative to friday and also just in general because i you know you come away with so much data when you do that kind of stuff that um you know for me data is really hard when it's that much when you only have one right if you have two three four you can kind of start creating a picture or understand oh i've been training a different way or i've been thinking something different and and is this leading to to anything worthwhile right but um yeah i got to watch rom hit a few balls watch him warm up which was pretty cool and um, then he went in there and, and took some swings. I, I think he's probably a little bit further along in that kind of, um, you know, data compilation journey, I guess. Um, I, I think for them, it's it's a lot more about when they're when they're right 
getting that on on data. And for us, it's a lot of when something's going wrong, trying to, and we can't fix it, right? Like there's times, as you know, last year, early in the season, there was a lot of things that I have felt that I wasn't feeling and then I couldn't recreate them, right? So that's when like, I'll go get the data and say like, hey, something X, Y, and Z isn't going correctly. Um, and it's also for me, it's a lot more of a play, not playful, but like kind of what we're talking about different cues and seeing if something gets me closer or, you know, I guess it is kind of a, a playful thing of, of figuring out well, if I do this and it's really extreme feeling to me, maybe it's not as extreme in the data and, and I can kind of push that until it feels normal or, or whatever. But I think this one on Friday was probably the first time I've been on a full biomechanic lab and, and felt pretty good. So that's, that's going to be a cool kind of data set to have. And, um, you know, we also found some stuff that I think is a little bit inefficient that maybe we can figure out. So, um, yeah, it was overall a pretty, pretty cool day and, and a beneficial day for me. Real quick. I've got a Tom house question because yeah. I was reading about how Tom house kind of helped Jose Barrios this off season okay. and Barrios is a great example of like how yeah. paying attention to how you work and how the body was working. Like they altered the throw a little bit for Barrios yeah. is, is what I read. And that guy went from what a mid fives, a high fives last year to yeah. now rocking a low three and looking like he was absolutely worthy of that extension that he signed with yeah. Toronto. So I'm just curious, like, and you don't need to get into specifics with you. What does Tom house do for pitchers that are some of the best in the planet at what they do? Right. So I guess to kind of go back to the origin of, of that relationship, right. We've been, well, first off, my grandfather, I, I took some pitching lessons when I was nine or 10 years old. And my grandfather ordered the Tom House videos, which I let him know that, you know, I'm 29 and, and I was 10 years old and he's been doing it that long and he must be kind of old and, you know, whatever. But um, no, I think a lot of the the fundamental principles that most of us learned that were advanced from pick up your leg and throw it like every little league coach, right? I, I think every dad that was trying to help their kid or grandfather or whoever it was, that was kind of the gold standard for a long time. And and in talking to, I've been working, not working with, probably going to be working with talking to, to the people from the mustard app, which is a, a phone app that can kind of give you some, some data points and some actually really useful ones, even for, from little league to, to where I'm at. And so in, in talking to them, I, I got connected with Tom, who's a, a big part of their kind of, not only of their app, but kind of their algorithm and what they're looking for and what they're trying to, to accomplish and, and coach kids to do. And um, so it worked out really well that, that, you know, we started getting on the phone and and I'm hoping we started recording some of those, which should be pretty cool. when when they come out, I think I'm trying to show like kind of the things that we're doing and, and the things that I'm trying to figure out, but um you know, we've probably done that for four or five weeks or six weeks or so. And, and so to be in there in person and, and have the voice and the, the one rep instead of one bullpen, right. I, I think that kind of feedback and quick feedback is, is kind of what um, I operate on and being able to experiment and kind of give him what I feel, what he sees and, and get a second set of eyes, right. Because I think to be as good as you can be, right. You largely have to be your own pitching coach. And I think my coach at Vanderbilt 
was a big proponent of that and figuring out, I can give you all the puzzle pieces, but you're going to have to put it together. And so I, I think our guys do a great job of that in general, but I, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm not with the team. And, and so to have an, an outlet like that to kind of bounce, bounce stuff off of once a week has been huge for me. And, and then you take that a step further to where he's right there. Um, and can see it live and see it in the, in the fashion that he would want to, I think is nothing but beneficial. And, you know, obviously everyone re respects and knows that name in terms of pitching. Yeah. Um, but also in talking to him, there's been a lot of like the, the, the guy's still learning and still altering kind of what he wants and what he sees. And um, it's pretty impressive to watch a guy go, you know, from a lot of different thoughts on pitching. And, and I think it takes a lot of humility, right? Because you've made all this, you've been known as this pitching wizard and to still be learning new ways, I think is incredible. So um, it was really cool for me in, in a lot of different ways and, and also beneficial because I still think he's one of the better, better pitching minds around. So I think thirst for knowledge would be the number one answer to, to this question. But my, my question was going to be, it, you have those pitching minds that are so well-respected and you kind of mentioned you get the puzzle pieces and then it's kind of up to you to put it together. What makes the the best pitching minds so good? Is it the way that they're able to translate what their thoughts to you, the way they're able to pick different things up for different types of pitchers? Like what is it that makes the best pitching minds and best pitching coaches just that good and, and so clear cut? Um, I mean, there's different kinds now, right? I, I think for a long time, it was all mechanical coaches and, and coaches that, we're teaching mechanics or different ways to achieve certain goals or, or whatever. And, and I had that in, in the big leagues and Rick Honeycutt and he was one of my favorite people I've ever been around in terms of very, very calming. And, and, you know, I didn't do scouting. He scouted for me and told me what I needed to do. And my delivery, I'd say, Hey, I why I find myself asking those guys more, why is this happening? And they have like a, well, I think you're a little forward or you're a little this, but it's small tweaks and they're giving you things in bite-sized pieces enough that you can do it on the next throw. And then you kind of have the modern pitching coach, which really you need two. And some guys are both, right? You need like the biomechanic guy, which is the same old school thing, except now I know all this data about myself and, and I want to change this and that. And this is why my elbow hurts or this is why my hip hurts or whatever it is, right? And you have the guys that can analyze that stuff. And then you also have the guys that can say, well, we need to get your hand in a little different position because on the track man, you're doing this and the spin and whatever. Right. And so the modern pitching coach in a, in a lot of ways is, is a couple people. Yeah. And, and you see it, we have Mark Pryor and we have Connor McGinnis and they each have their strengths and game planning and whatever. Um, so it's really a, a threefold job, right? It's getting guys to be efficient with their delivery, getting their hand to be efficient to create the movement that they want, and then getting the game plan efficient to the strengths and the weaknesses of the pitcher and the hitter. That that's that's the big three of of being a major league pitching coach, um, which is something that I feel like being a major league pitcher is being super proficient in in a few of those, or at least being open to or being really good at certain things like Clayton can repeat his delivery. Like no one I've ever seen, right? Like I've watched him throw bullpens for seven years and you, you can walk up and there's one foot mark where he lands. 
So there, you can see all every cleat, and it looks like he did it. He threw one time, right? And he'll throw a thirty pitch bullpen. That's biomechanic, and you know the awareness of his body. Um, but I think for a long time he probably couldn't have told you why his fastball was so good, or why his slider was so good, or or whatever, right? Um, so you kind of fill up the different cups in in different ways, and I've kind of always been that weird in between, and and I've just kind of stayed um trying to elevate everything at the same time right i'll go watch guys on trackman watch them in my eyes see why it works watch other pitchers see what the numbers are and then go learn the biomechanic and then try and execute it right like that's that's probably the more modern way to do it but there are still guys on the polar ends of i'm just trying to throw to this vert number and then there's guys that are just trying to be really powerful, like, and and throw the ball the same way every way or every time. So I think it can be done every way, but, you know, I think reflected in the way that I throw or I throw every pitch, like I'm trying to grab every little piece of, of everything I can. I was going to say, there, there are probably a lot of guys that don't need to know the answer to the question why with a lot of their stuff. It's right. like, oh, that did this. Nice. But you are so clearly a why guy. And, and I'm sure that you you know share a clubhouse and you've seen around baseball, like guys that just don't need to know the answer why. It's like, okay, my stuff is good. It's getting people out. And, and that's kind of about it, right? Yeah. See, I, I would, I 100% understand why you would have that perception. For me, it's all about the feel. So that's where the, I think that's where most of us agree. Like if I don't feel it, I can't keep doing it. And so for me, it's like, oh, biomechanically teach me something. I felt that. That's great. I can now hold on to that. Track man or whatever or whatever, you know, performance of the pitch, right? I can feel that. I can hold on to that. But I can do both those things at a high level and not feel it and know that it's like a fleeting thing or I just clipped it or I just happened to get in a spot or whatever. Right. So I, I think, I think those are the bricks, right. Of biomechanics and pitching to a number. And then the mortar is feeling it right. Like I can build this thing up high, but one wind that thing's coming down, but yep. if you can get the feel of it continuously, you can kind of, I can't believe I just did a brick and mortar you know, idea, but, no, but it is. It allows you to always like to find it again. Right. Cause once you know the feel, it's like, it's easier to get back right. to that and, and what you want to do. And right. like for hitters too. First every spring will go through and say, I can't feel my slider and he'll be throwing good sliders. You just can't feel it the same way. Um, and for me, like it's even like, a, it's the most abstract thing I've heard in pitching for me. I, I try and throw shapes with my arms. So most people say, Oh, I'm trying to throw a shape of a pitch. I'm trying to make my arm into a certain shape. That's what I feel, right? Yeah. So you can think of like a fastball. I try and throw like a mountain, right? I'm trying to climb and get to the top and throw it down. My curveball, I'm trying to throw like a wave. I want my elbow to go and the hand to kind of like be a wave behind it, right? But if I don't feel those things, then I don't know how to adjust the same way that that I do when I do feel those certain things. Can so, I just say you you totally have a children's book on your hands here? It's like throw a wave, like an instructional pitching children's book. You've totally got that right there. Yeah, I 
I get it. I wish I could teach a kid that, but I've tried to explain this to like coaches and players and like, that's, it's not, it doesn't resonate the same way. It, well, it's just not something that other people really think about it that way. But for me, I, I honestly think being a little kid that like a smaller kid that was trying to figure out different ways to do it. I had to find like more singular ways to do things, right? Like a lot of my friends were a lot harder than me and they could just throw it harder or softer or harder or soft. For me, I had to like, try and figure it out. And so I think that's just how it, I don't know if I got a weird brain or, or whatever it is, but um, yeah, like I won't tell you I can really throw a pitch until I, I have a shape built into how I want to throw it. So I know it's different probably for pitcher to pitcher, but you know, let's say you get in a little bit of a jam, pitching coach comes out, what are they talking about with you? I think that's one of the, the most common fan questions there. Of course, yeah. sometimes it's the game plan for the hitter, but let's say it's it's you against yourself right now and the yeah. pitching coach is coming out there. It, it's like, what what are they trying to, are they trying to help you find those cues? Or are they trying to help you identify what feel you need to find? Like, what is the pitching yeah, I, coach coming out there to say to you? Um, I, I mean, I think it's dependent on, on what level you're talking, right? The, the high school pitching coach should not be doing anything other than trying to like, relax the guy mm -hmm. my college pitching coach would come out and have a joke or a quip or a whatever and then kind of an idea of what we wanted to do because in college there is scouting reports for sure but it's not like it is in professional baseball right so if you come out and you're like oh we got to do this 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 and this then you then you're risking giving that guy that's not ready for all that five five steps when you're really just going out there to make sure he does the first one. Right. Mm -hmm. So the college coach should come out and tell some joke or something he knows about you or whatever, and then tell you the first pitch and then move on. Now, I think as you go through the, the professional levels, you end up with more of just the scouting report and like, as weird as it sounds like the, the most, prideful I feel is when they're like hey you got this big boy like kind of like you're a professional here's the report go do that like mm -hmm. all this sh whatever shit has happened like pick your leg up be you be yourself throw these pitches because I, I think at the end of the day we're playing a children's game right but we're, we've got like some of the biggest stakes in the world like we we get to live this crazy life in terms of um you know financial independence and all this stuff because we throw a ball and and sometimes it's not just a children's game sometimes it is like i want to buy a house back home and if i strike this guy out maybe i can do that right like but that's the mental game that you play with yourself we play 162 games i'm throwing 32 games I've faced 30 different shortstops, right? Like I'm facing this guy from this team and how do I get that little thing? Well, if I punch this down in this spot and I don't give up two runs, then you know what? Maybe I make this an arb or maybe like you, you can build your own stakes however far you want to do it. And, and for some guys, and, and I think I'm probably one of those guys, less so the monetary thing, but just the, like this guy's not an all-star. This guy's not that like, I can go do this, you know? And so I think there's just learning the ticks of each different guy, but 
Um, I, I think in pro ball, you would hear a lot of, all right, it's, it's this average, this slug on this pitch and this zone. If we get ahead early, it's slider over curveball, it's cutter, fine, two seat. It, it's all that. It's kind of all detail because the assumption is that everything from, am I freaking out to, can I execute is taken care of. You're supposed to be a major league baseball player and a, and a major league starter. And so there's less of that kind of mental game, right. Of my college coach telling me that I looked tiny in the weight room the day before. Right. Like, yeah. But, if, so, you know, it's, a, it's a different, you're at a different point in your life and you're kind of playing for a different thing. So it's, it's less about trying to get you or trying to figure out why you got into the jam that you're in. It's just, here's the path out. Let's try and come out of it. Because at this point you're a major leaguer, you know why you loaded the bases up or why you're in the spot that you're in basically. Right. I mean, I think less like you think about the mistakes that you make as a college player, right. Or a high school player, even, even more specifically, you're playing your rival, right. And, you're amped up and you're trying to throw really hard and guess what? You're drifting and everything's going higher. Like my mistakes now in a major league game are not going to be high arm side, every throw yeah. Yeah. my rookie year in the playoffs against Ronald Acuna, which everyone has shown me this video a thousand times. They were all up. I was amped up. He's one of the better players in the world. He's a rookie. I'm a rookie. We're in the playoffs. I kept missing up. Right but they weren't arm side. Those are just over accelerated throws. I'm not, my delivery is not bad because I'm not missing this way. I'm missing at the top. I walked a pitcher in that game for Christ's sakes. But at the end of the day, like nobody came out there. Like I've had a good rookie year. People, like you trust me to go get these guys out. It's five straight fastballs. It's I threw the three O's up, but they called it a strike. The next one I threw through on right down the middle as hard as I could because I have a good fastball. I believe in my delivery. I've proven for 22 games that I can get people out and, and it is what it is. I give up a home run. It's fine. But in college, they have 12 games a year, 14 games a year. These coaches at this point in the season have seen other guys start 32 games and seen me start 23 games or 24, whatever it is like it's such a different thing. You watch a guy throw 25 games than it is 12. And there's such a belief in professional baseball of if you're a guy, there's such a belief in you because it is so difficult to be a starting pitcher or a reliever or whatever it is over the course of 162. It's so different than 64 games. Mm -hmm. So in college or high school, when you play 30, think about that. We play our entire high school career every year. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that coach doesn't need to come out there and tell you like, Hey man, like you're pretty good. Like you're going to make varsity next year. They don't need, you don't need all of that. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a really, that's probably the most representative conversation of like where you're at in terms of um, them believing in your general ability to like throw quality pitches, I, I guess. It's kind of a letdown for this whole rant that I've gone on, but like, that's the feeling, right? Is if you come out and just tell me a scouting report, you believe that I can execute that. Yeah. If you come out there and like try and fix my mentality, like then 
especially now, if somebody comes out there and tries to like break the ice with me, like, I don't think you believe that I can do this in my current mental state. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is now extremely scary to me as opposed to back in the day, that was like what got me like back to, okay. Dude. I love where this went. I think I'm speaking for Aram too. Yeah, like, that makes a lot of sense. This was a really cool pitching conversation. So I, yeah, really happy that you went on that rant. It's not a rant. Like this is gold for people. No, that... I feel like I won't stop talking and I get like this when uh, it's happened to the TPI we were talking after and I just like, I, it was hard for me to stop, you know, but it, it that's how I work. And, and people that are around me a lot will tell you that this is kind of when I'm like in something, I, I can kind of go. So I know we've mentioned your friend at Red Vanley and and I think they're going to become our friends too. And I was talking to Jim at Red Vanley and he said, this guy so clearly loves baseball after a round of golf with you. And I was like, yeah, man, like I think everybody's picking that up. So, I mean, dude, you're keying our audience into you loving baseball like this and you being, you know, like obviously you've got a bunch of other stuff going on and I think our audience understands that, but you being obsessed with, getting people out getting better to this extent is like so cool for us to see and i know for our audience to see too and i i hope you know that yeah well man i listen the way i think about it is i think it's hard enough to be really good at anything in life number one and especially in athletics and, and you start boiling this whole thing down like if you can't like obsess over it in a weird way when you find the one thing that you're really good at then yeah then I think you really have a ceiling on how good you can be at it. Like, listen, I'm a, I'm a six foot 185. Now I'm like 200 pounds. I've gained all this weight, but you know, for a lot of my career, I was six, 185 pound kid from Kentucky that was starting playoff games for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Like if you can't obsess over that, like, I don't know, like, how do I get better at that? Like, <laughs> I've got all this shit that's being handed to me because I can throw this ball where I want it or how I want it or whatever. And through the ups, the downs of it, like at the end of the day, like that's what I get to do for a living. And, and that's so like crazy to me. My boys from Eastern little league or they played today. I don't know if they won or not. I didn't get to see the game, but they may be going to Omaha or not Omaha. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe get through it up. You know, I don't know, but like I was that kid and that was like, there were years where that was like the peak of what I thought athletically I would do. And then the next year I did this and the next year, but at one point that was the thing. And, and then two years ago, like, man, I'm, I thought I was the be- one of the best starting pitchers in baseball. And, and so that kind of shift that I think this obsession that drives me nuts because I know I drive other people when I talk nuts sometimes but like, I wouldn't trade that for anything, right? Like I've driven Kirsch nuts. The other day when I was in LA, cause I've been cooped up in here. I couldn't shut the fuck up. I just couldn't. <laughs> well, I was going to say you, you found the perfect place. Cause this is, this is exactly this, the, right. the audience that we have here is, is exactly wanting you to not shut the fuck up. So like, it works out really well. Um, and neither do we. And, uh, the one thing I will say, I think that that was pretty like interesting to take away from that is, is it's applicable to to so many different people. You don't have to be one of the best baseball throwers in the world to be obsessed. And I think obsessed has like a negative connotation, but it, it shouldn't uh, to just be 
passionate and and overly passionate and desperate to be the best at what you're good at like everybody's good at like you said like different things and if you're obsessed with the thing that you're good at you can become one of the best at that thing and i think that's applicable to anybody in any context whether you throw 97 or not no i agree i mean listen if you if people out there like if you're selling and if you're selling insurance like the more you know about the way that the people all around you think right like selling insurance where i'm from is different from Every other, it's just, it's all the same shit. You just have to, I think for me, learning and, and trying to learn every different way to mm-hmm. apply certain things, mm-hmm. I think that's the only way to simultaneously raise your floor mm-hmm. and your ceiling, right? And so for me, the more I know, the more that I put into the cog that somehow is my body now, which if you would ask me 10 years ago, I'm like, what are you talking like? you're going to go be a lawyer. Like that's your only option. Yeah. And then 10 years later, it's all about learning how to make my fingers do this much more turn <laughs> at as fast as I like, but that's what I figured out. Right. Or I learned how to be obsessed with. And, and I think um, watching some of the guys that I've gotten to play with the older guys, they're all about raising the floor. They've always like, Kirsch, Rich Hill, all these guys have always talked to me about, listen, your curveball is only as good as the worst one you throw, right? Like Rich Hill, his curveball is good every time he throws it. Clayton's cur- Clayton slider is good every time he throws it. And so like raising this floor is something that is the old school way, right? Like you watch Tom Glavin or all these old, guys like their stuff was exceptional on certain days but their bad ones were still good they were still six on four and they still kept their team in it and that's something that's probably a little bit lost today Mm -hmm. I think but something that I've embraced forever and I've also kind of embraced the new school like how how high can we ramp the ceiling and how good can I be on any given day and for me that's kind of been the thing now I've blown up two elbows and, and I've been pursuing everything good I can. And, and maybe I could have take you know, had four gears instead of six, but I don't think that's, that's really how I'll ever operate. Okay. We're not talking wild card, man. This is a perfect spot to add. Like what yeah. a fun conversation. And I mean, you say you've blown up two elbows, like you're facing live hitters today at, at Chase Field or tomorrow. Yeah. Like we know you're drinking Weller, but you're facing them tomorrow. Like this is cool, man. And we can't wait to see you do what you're amazing at in, in short order. So this is great. Uh, we'll save the wild card shit for next week, man. Walker Bueller. Nobody wants it anyways. No one wants Nobody the wild wants card it. in the NL anyways. Dude. People want that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll deal with that next week. Walker Bueller, you're awesome, man. Appreciate you. And, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you.